Hello and welcome. My name's Karen O'Connor and you're listening to the amazing Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Thank you, Lucy, so much for being here. I met Lucy a few weeks ago at a business networking group and she told me what she did and I was like, oh, I need you to come on the podcast. This is so cool. So Lucy, tell me a bit about yourself. Tell me who you are and what it is you do. Well, first off, thank you so much for for having me on your podcast. I went overseas and volunteered when I was 18. And during that time, I I sort of unexpectedly got involved with a project that ended up going on for about three years. Upon finishing that project, we came home with a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding about Tanzania and, you know, education and things like that. So we decided to go ahead and and establish a non-profit organisation. I'm currently at university. I've recently moved up to the Gold Coast. And yeah, the the past year during COVID, I've I've really just been focusing on establishing this NGO, which we're we're finally there and things are really happening. Yeah. (laughs) What made you go over to Tanzania? Because it's not somewhere that's on most people's holiday lists. What what drew you to Tanzania of all places? Well, (laughs) to be honest, I grew up uh, with my uncle and he had done a, a, one of those massive overland safari trips in his 20s. So they did the whole of the southern part of the African continent. So growing up, I'd always look through his photo albums and it tell me stories and we sort of had a bit of a thing that when I was 16 he was going to take me but obviously that came around and never ended up happening but then so I I had a bit of money when I uh, turned 17 I think it was and I was sort of just I was sitting in one of my classes in year 12 and looked at a map and thought I'm going to go to Tanzania I knew nothing about Tanzania I knew I wanted to do Africa but I'll be honest, I knew nothing about each of the individual African countries. So I looked at a map, pointed at it and said, that's where I'm going to go. And I I found a volunteer opportunity and went. So, yeah. So what were your plans at school? Because obviously what you're doing now is possibly completely different to what you had in mind for yourself at school. What happened when you got over there? Yeah, well, when I was at school, I've one of those people that I changed my mind every three seconds. So I wanted to be a lawyer at one stage and then an archaeologist and then a hairdresser and I had no idea. So this trip for me really was I just wanted to see Africa. I had no idea that it was going to lead on to what it has now. I I just went with the intention of wanting to do the one holiday. I obviously went as a volunteer and, and I went shortly after turning 18. So I was still in year 12 and I was on a childcare placement and there's a lot of stuff around ethical volunteering and volunteer tourism and stuff like that and how it can be dangerous. So I was very, very conscious of that. And pretty quickly after getting there and stepping into the classroom, I realised that I was not at all qualified to be there. So I, I sort of took a step back from the classroom and the school that I was volunteering in was a local school run by a local woman. Her name was Pascalina. She just ran the, the classroom out of the back of her home. It was like a two metre by three metre classroom. And she'd sort of started her own little initiative to buy some land just so she could have a space for these children to run around. So I, I diverted my attention to that really. And, and that ended up snowballing. And three years later, we had a, a two classroom pre-primary school. So when you went over there, what was the intention that you were going to do? What did you think you were going to do when you went over? Oh, to be honest, I have no idea. I, like I said, I kind of went in a little bit blind. I just thought, 
<laughs> oh, volunteering, I can do that. That's not going to be too hard. I wanted to go and see a culture. I wanted to learn. I wanted to actually be somewhere for a decent period of time to be able to, you know, get involved and meet the local people and really get a proper understanding. So I think if anything more for myself, I I wanted to learn from it and I did, I did and yeah. So where were you staying during all this? So I went through one of those programs. There's a lot of these big sort of travel companies that do volunteer trips, working holidays, things like that. So it was a, a local organisation on the ground in Arusha, which is in the northern part of Tanzania, and we were staying in a volunteer house. So all different travellers from around the world, Europeans, Americans, Middle Easterns. Yeah, it was just it was like a giant share house sort of hostel situation in, in the city, which was so much fun and you meet all sorts of people crazy people fun people amazing people (laughs) you started working with Pascalina and then what happened how did it develop from there so by the I went in April of 2018 and about mid 2017 there was another Australian woman who was a qualified teacher who had also volunteered at Pascalina's school she was sort of like the driving force behind the whole thing so During that trip, I I got in touch with her and said, hey, look, I'm really interested in in being a little bit more involved with this. Obviously, tried whilst I was there, just tried wrapping my head around everything and how the project was going to look, what they were wanting to do, how we could fundraise, things like that. So I I came home and and I was still in year 12 at the time. So I had about a year left of schooling to go. So first I, I just focused on trying to get my school involved a little bit, doing fundraisers through school. I wrote to a whole bunch of politicians because I'm crazy and I just ask people for everything. So did stuff like that and, and it worked out. They they gave a bit of money, which was great. So, yeah, just stayed in touch with Dana, stayed in touch with Pascalina. The minute I got home after that first trip, I, I booked my second trip back and, and went back in November to follow up. And by that stage, we, we had the land and, yeah. What were you actually doing over there? What was your day-to-day life like? My day-to-day life, so usually we would wake up in the morning, have breakfast. Obviously, you have they have people that, that help out and things like that around the house, nothing, you know, dodgy or anything like that, all perfectly legitimate. Have breakfast, they would cook the nicest food. Go to placement in the morning, usually about 7 or 8, we'd go down to Pascalina School. I was lucky because she was only about uh, five minutes from where we were. Some placements were two hours away, so... Yeah, we'd go down to her. I would usually go and, you know, say hello to the kids, spend a bit of time just playing games in the classroom and things like that just, just for fun and then would more sort of focus on on helping out Pascalina and trying to figure out a bit of a plan, figuring out the registration po- process, sorry, of what it looks like to register a school in Tanzania, how to do all of that, dealing with governments and things like that and, and a couple of other little bits and pieces along the way. Pascalina has... 11 children I think they're not all her children but she's sort of taken them on within the community and cares for them and things like that because you know their families couldn't do so so helping out with stuff around that as well taking kids to doctor's appointments and things like that so yeah I'm trying to get my head around this so Pascalina's (laughs) uh, home is actually in the city is it yes so Arusha's uh, quite a small city they've only got about 200 200 300,000 population so it's not a huge place she lived in an area called Morombo which is uh, quite an impoverished area she herself 
doesn't come from an awful lot. So her house was, it had about three rooms, I think. One of them was classroom and the other two rooms for were bedrooms for the 11 kids plus her own children. So, yeah, no, she was in like a, just like her own little village area and all the kids that attended the school uh, were kids from that area whose families couldn't afford them to send them to school in other places. So there's no public education in Tanzania, is that right? Or is there a charge for it? How does it work? Yeah, it's it's a bit tricky. At the time, children, so there's not really any free pre-primary education. There's a bit more now. In 2007, they allegedly hit universal primary education, but that number has significantly dropped since. And millions around Tanzania have been dropping out ever since because these these government schools and things like that are no longer really supporting families that can't afford to send their kids to school. Yeah, no, there's not a lot. And children who are age seven have to do a qualifying test to be permitted to go to primary school, basically. So in addition to that, yeah, a lot of kids would end up not being able to continue and obviously once they hit primary school, yeah, there would be levies and things like that involved that a lot of families couldn't afford to support. So there are other NGO schools and there are private schools. There's a really huge organisation over there called School of St Jude's. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. She's an Australian woman who she started in 2000 and they now provide over 2,000 children with free education. So there are a couple of non-for-profits where kids can go to school for free but for the most part yeah there's there's not a lot unfortunately so it seems kind of like I can on the one hand I can understand why the government are saying you've got to pass this test to keep going because they're trying to encourage people to get into pre-primary education and stay there but at the same time it's also a major block for families who can't afford it and when the families are that poor the children have to help out as well, don't they, around the house or in the fields and stuff? Oh, yeah. And there is there is a lot of children that hit that age seven and are forced to go into work without being able to continue schooling. So, yeah, it's quite a big hurdle. Where that is now, I, I can't say for sure if that's still as common as it was back in 2018, but I know it's still something that happens, particularly for government schools, yeah. So going from your education in Australia, where did you go to school? I grew up in Tasmania, so I just went to, to government school. So I went to Bereave and Clarence High School and then Rosney College in year 11 and 12. So that's a completely different experience to going over to Tanzania and teaching in a two-metre by three-metre room to these 11 kids. <laughs> well and truly a different experience. I mean, I, I'll be honest, before I went, like I said, I had no idea what I'd be stepping into. and. My favourite thing about because I've seen a couple of other schools and placements and things like that over there and some schools have grown a bit and they've got more infrastructure and that kind of thing but the way the children are sometimes treated in these schools is is not always great. Pascalina's school, which had basically no infrastructure, it was tiny and there would be 40 kids fighting their way into this room every day, was the nicest school I've ever been. The teacher was lovely with them. They were little kids, but they were all very engaged. They wouldn't run around. They would be absolutely stinking hot every day, but they would still sit there and do the right thing. If one of them was playing up, the teacher would just get down to their level, give them a hug, make a bit of a joke with them and it was really, really nice to see. So what degree are you doing now? 
I'm doing government international relations. Are you? Okay. Yeah. So when did you leave Tanzania? So I went the first time April 2018. That was about an eight-week trip. I went back in November 2018 and then I went back in January 2020. So we got back, I, I came home about mid-February, right before COVID hit. We were like one of the last couple of few in. So, yeah. And then you came home with one of the intentions, well, two intentions. One was to do your degree and the second one was to set up a charity to raise funds. Is that right? Yes, yeah, correct. So obviously when we were doing the project for Pascalina's school, it was never a, like a legitimate organisation. We were just fundraising through friends and family, did it all privately and things like that. When we got to the end of it, we originally looked at continuing to go on with that project and to grow the school. But unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of legal ramifications that meant we we were pretty much forced to take a step back. Pascalina is doing amazing. She's thriving with the school. They're doing really, really well. But it just, yeah, it just meant that financially we couldn't continue to support them just to do with due diligence things. But yeah, obviously, like I said, we, we had three years worth of experience and, and we wanted to, to keep going. We knew the need was bigger than ever. And then obviously COVID-19 hit, which is just skyrocketed the number of kids out of school so how is the how is COVID going over there so it's kind of funny and I've got to be a bit careful about what I say but their president actually has a PhD in chemistry but he tested a pawpaw a pineapple and a goat or something for COVID-19 back in April last year and they all came back positive so he basically threw his hands up and said nah this is rubbish I'm not going to continue with it and they stopped reporting numbers they've been functioning like completely normal they haven't had it affect them in any other way so they try and say that there are no cases obviously that's not true at all there are cases all over the place but it, it sort of just goes unreported but what's happened because of it obviously countries like Australia and the US and things like that not being allowed to travel um, Arush is just on the border of all the safari destinations so Ngorogoro, Crater, Serengeti, things like that their main and really only industry is a tourist industry so that's been completely shot by COVID which has massively affected basically everyone. So when you came back over here with the intention of setting up the charity, how does setting up the charity change how you can contribute to Pascalina? Well, look, to to be completely truthful, what actually ended up happening, so because we didn't originally go down the path of setting up a charity and we should have looked at this earlier, it's, it shows that everything's a learning experience and you, you make mistakes as you go. Had we have set it up as a charity initially, we could have gone down the path of registering the school in the name of Power the Children, which was the name of the school, and having all of those legitimate processes and things like that in place, having a legitimate governing board in place. But Pascalina sort of went ahead and it was all registered in her personal name and it's illegal both within Tanzania and Australia to give money to anything that's owned by an individual. So... We really tried sort of reiterating all of that and fixing that up so it was all registered in the correct name, but she wasn't really wanting to do that. She wanted to, to keep it how it was and things like that, so we just had to amicably say, well, look, unfortunately we can't continue to support you. Now we've registered 
as an actual charity, we have now got our own project essentially, but if she comes back and, and says, look, we, we want to do this legitimately, we want to go down the path of being a charity rather than a business because she wanted to go down the path of it being a business rather than a charity, basically, we would take it on tomorrow. But she's, like I said, it, it's not really a necessary thing now. She's doing amazing on her own, so that's great. With your charity, what are you doing with it? So what we are doing, it's, it's been a bit of a journey, actually. This last two months has, has sort of transformed. So obviously, when we originally came back, our main area of focus and what we knew was getting kids back into school. So we looked at going down the path. We were going to look at setting up a, another school, supporting schools directly to get children into school. But another looming aspect that we originally had the plan of doing, but in the very, very long run, was setting up a support system for teachers. Majority of teachers, not majority, sorry, 60% of teachers in Tanzania are underqualified, particularly those ones working in those very grassroots schools. So we wanted to set up a project that was going to support them, some kind of a professional development initiative. So just through more research, doing needs assessments and things like that on the ground, it just became more and more and more apparent that there's basically nothing really else out there apart from a handful of organisations working to actually support the teachers. So we've gone down that path. So we've got four qualified teachers on board here in Australia helping us develop a professional development program, all based around the Tanzanian curriculum and syllabus. And it's just really designed to give teachers additional teaching and learning concepts, how to utilise resources which are locally attainable to them and things like that to provide some kind of an upskill and support to that 60% of underqualified teachers. So, yeah, now our, our mission is to support teachers, is to improve access to quality education, which will obviously indirectly, what do you call it, benefit, sorry, all of the children in those grassroots schools, like what Pascalina's was originally, the local woman down the road that's running a school for kids in her area because they don't have any other option. That's what we're aiming to support. And how will your degree help with all that? Will it help with all that? Oh, I don't know. My degree, obviously, I've been focusing so much on this charity in the last six months that and I probably shouldn't, but I've kind of put my degree on the back burner a little bit. I'm still doing it, but it's, it's my thing in the background. Look, it's provided, it's, it's international relations. So it's giving me an idea of international politics and things like that. But it right now, I don't feel like it's directly impacting me in, in the work that I'm doing right now. But I think from an international sense, if we grow and become a, a much larger charity, I'm sure it will provide benefit down the track just with understanding of how to deal with governments and things like that. But right now it's more just for the, I don't know. <laughs> so in terms of your business plan, what are your plans for the charity immediately and say in two years, five years' time? Yeah, so we have got, we've got really quite a clear club plan now, like I said, it's kind of been a little bit of time in, in the process just doing that needs assessment and things like that, which has been great because it's allowed us to really actually nail down where the need is and, and where we can be of most benefit. 
So what we're doing right now, we're in the development phase. As I said, we've got those qualified teachers on board helping us develop the initial course. We are trying to fundraise the total amount that it's going to cost us to run this project for the duration of one year before we start so we don't meet any hiccups in that first year. So we're aiming to raise the $15,000 by June, July 2021. June, July 2021 comes around. What we're wanting to do is to rent a facility on the ground over in Tanzania, whether it's a a two-bedroom private house or an office space, somewhere where we can run this teacher outreach program. The program has three pillars, I I sort of think of it as in my head. So the first pillar is that course, which is designed to upskill and support the 60% of underqualified teachers. So just a bit of a comprehensive sort of overview of the curriculum, how they can implement it where they can access other resources, et cetera. The second pillar is um, an access to resources centre. So through that same facility, we will have a bit of a library system set up. So teachers from all around Tanzania, whether they're qualified or underqualified, will have access, access to computers and technology to get access to online resources, see how other parts of the world do education, I guess, access to textbooks, storybooks, things like that. And then the third pillar is collaboration. So running through that same centre, again, running PL sessions with teachers. So having, whether it's bi-weekly, weekly, monthly, teacher collaboration sessions where they can come along, discuss with other teachers what's worked for them, what hasn't, planning together, collaboration really. And then the outreach side of that is going out to schools and communities in the area to run collaborative sessions with school management, as well as collaborative sessions with parents and teachers to promote parent-teacher engagement in their, their children's learning. So obviously we will have local staff members on the ground which will head all of this. So that's what the program's going to look for the first year. But then in the long run, We haven't exactly hashed out what we want to do in two years or five years, but our ideas really are to just grow this, develop other courses and things like that. We will operate and run so English-speaking courses because English is quite prominent in their school system now, but obviously, particularly for those underqualified teachers, sorry, English language is, is not their first language. So English courses, teaching primary education courses, whether we set up some kind of a donation system where schools can apply for donation packs of particular sets of resources and textbooks, things like that. Perhaps looking at doing a, a scholarship program to support under uh, sorry underqualified teachers um, actually attending university and getting their Bachelor of Education. So that's really where I see it going in in the two to five year sort of mark. But right now we're really focusing on on just getting that one centre and operating those three pillars. And where will you open that centre? So we're doing that in Moshi, Tanzania, which is just slightly north of Arusha, about 40 minutes north of Arusha. So slightly smaller town right at the very base of Kilimanjaro. And why that town? Well, we wanted to do that town, look... We, we're looking at, because if it's in Moshi, it can service both, both sorry, Arusha and Moshi, which is what we wanted to do. Moshi is a slightly smaller town and there's a lot more rural areas and rural schools around there, which is where the target demographic really is. So that's more why we've sort of selected to do it in Moshi opposed to Arusha, which is a bit more metropolitan, a little bit more 
developed as such, I guess you could say, without you know what I mean. What is the the uh, what I don't know how to say this. What is the commitment of parents to get their children educated? I didn't know how to say that without sounding really patronising. You know? I know, I know. I have to be careful how I word things too sometimes because in my head it comes out and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, oh, I can't say that. Oh, no, that sounds terrible. No. Look, so so through those those needs assessment and things like that we've run and just through research and things like that, it, it's quite prominent that, Parents are not particularly engaged with their children's learning. I know that like education, obviously, in Tanzania is massively valued. The children value their education from such a young age because they know what's at stake if they don't get an education. So it's not that it's not valued. It's just parent engagement in their children's learning is pretty lacklustre it's not particularly common and so teachers and things like that a lot of the feedback we were getting were just saying that parents are not engaged they don't always do a lot of education at home and the respect for for teachers and schooling and things like that quite often just isn't there so quite a need to, to get parents engaged that's a really hard question but why is that the case? yeah to be honest I don't know. I hate to say that I don't know. I, I I should know the answer to that. Because that's the thing, one of the things that needs addressing, isn't it? Until, because until yeah. you've got the parents on side, the kids can be as interested as you want to be. But if the parents go, no, you need to come and work in the fields or you need to come and work in the shop. Oh, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of, yeah. So that's sort of more where I'm saying it's not that they don't value education. They want their kids in school. It's not that they don't want them there. It's just that they're not engaged with it right so getting their kids into school they want that they try their hardest to get their kids into any form of schooling but having them engage with the learning and engage with the teachers and what their children are actually doing in school is the part that's lacking and why that's the case yeah like I said I I I couldn't completely answer that I'm, I'm sure it sort of differentiates but I presume a lot of it probably comes down to that whole thing of They've got a lot going on in their lives, I guess. I mean, they, there are other challenges that we don't face here in a Western world that that they have to focus on, I guess. What is the rate of literacy among the adults? Because if they can't relate to whatever it is the kids are doing, they're not going to be able to be engaged and they're certainly not going to want to embarrass themselves and show the children that they don't know what the children are talking about. Well, yeah, that that's definitely true. The The literacy rate in adults, I think is quite low, particularly in women. Women are very undereducated in comparison with men. And obviously it's it I hate to say it is it is quite a misogynistic culture. So the women are generally expected to run the household, work, take care of most things, to be honest. So there's still a lot of women being married and having children at very very young ages and so obviously they don't continue with schooling and things like that so the adult literacy rate sorry in adult women is very very low and it trickles down because that access to quality education not being there means that in I think it was the 2014 examinations only eight percent of grade two pupils could read properly so yeah it's unfortunately quite low how did you cope with the misogyny? Was it based, placed on you as well or were you treated differently because you're a um, No, 
no, it wasn't placed on me. And I again, I hate to say this, I don't want this to make me sound rude at all because I don't like this, but obviously being a white woman going into that culture instantly, they are very much like, oh, Mazungu, like you get respected and, and expected to give advice and things like that on things that you're not qualified to do. So no, I never experienced the misogyny. Yes, you get comments made at you and things like that, or the men are very, very forthcoming with you. But no, in terms of being degraded as a woman, I didn't experience that. But you can see that it's prominent because obviously being a white woman, a white woman, sorry, the local women look at you, can they they quite often don't like you being there because they know that you're not, you don't have that same, what would you call it? Restriction, limitation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. They they know that us as white women aren't being treated that same way, which isn't okay. I don't like that. No, it, well, there'd be a resentment as well, wouldn't it? That, yeah, exactly, exactly. They can be, the women can quite often be standoffish towards you initially because they know you have rights that, that they don't have, which is, yeah. I'm assuming that most of the teachers, the Tanzanian teachers are women the same, and I'm making a massive assumption here because that's no, no, no. Australia. So it must be quite difficult for them to go against that culture and get an education to the point where they can go to university and get a degree. Yeah, oh, certainly. And it, it definitely depends on where you are. The more rural areas, obviously, they're still very much, I don't know how to put it, very much engaged with the older traditions of like a, a Maasai tribe, if that makes sense, where the women aren't educated and things like that. The more metropolitan areas which have progressed a little bit further, the women obviously are more likely to be educated in those areas and it's more likely to be encouraged. It's coming out of that a lot, which is great. But, yeah, no, there still is certainly a challenge for for those females to be able to continue with education. But a lot do it now, a lot more than there was before, which is amazing. What does it take for a woman to do that in that kind of society? If she comes from the country, she's going to be going against everything that she's been brought up with maybe, is she? Um, Look, it's hard to say. I mean, I I feel like I can't comment on this too much because obviously I'm I'm not in their position. I, I can't really say. But just in my experience, like I look at Pascalina's daughters, for example, and obviously Pascalina is very progressive with how she looks at things and she knows the value of education. She is obviously an older woman. So I know for her growing up, she grew up in a very misogynistic sort of style way. But look at her now. She's got her own school. She's led all of this on her own. Like she is such an inspiration, I think, to look at for that kind of thing. But I know she still faces that kind of thing. Like There was one time we were asking her actually for the registration documents of her own school when we were trying to look at how we could move forward and she wasn't allowed to get them because she was a woman. They were kept in a drawer only for the men to see and I was a bit like, whoa, this is your school. You've done this. You can't and she'll know. She had to wait for permission to get it. So I think it's it's a balancing act. You know, it it depends where you come from but... Again, like I said, it's becoming more and more progressive. So it's a lot more accepted than it used to be. It's a lot more, I don't know, 
prominent, I guess. And you, I'm, I'm, yeah, and I apologise for putting you in that awkward position. No, 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 not at all, not at all. It's not that. It's just, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, this is my opinion of what they do. I, I couldn't no. I couldn't say. Uh, and what I was going to say was it's quite obvious that you went over to Tanzania and fell in love with the country and the people and the culture. So obviously you see a lot of prospect for making a difference and you actually like who they are basically of course they are incredible it's a developing I mean there are things in Australian society that I don't like it doesn't matter where you are nothing's perfect but it's one of those things when you go into somewhere like that there are always going to be things that are frustrating there are always going to be challenges that get in the way but it's the way of the world I guess you know what I mean you've got to be prepared for that and you've got to be flexible and you've got to be willing to be wrong like that's something that's huge for us is that we're going to be wrong and we're going to make mistakes it's a matter of how we deal with that and yeah for me I absolutely love the whole the whole place I say this all the time is that obviously growing up that picture of Africa we get quite often in Australia is that it's a sad place it's a dark place which doesn't have a lot of opportunity it's not the case at all it is the most vibrant colorful amazing place I've ever been and I wouldn't say that Tanzania is a third world country I would say it's a progressive country it's developing it's in the process of that yes there is an awful lot of poverty and things like that but there's an awful lot of opportunity and they're doing amazing and I think it's just a matter of us supporting that now you keep talking about we in the charity who's we <laughs> so I lead most of the day-to-day stuff, obviously, here in Australia, but our other director, Lena, she's based in India. She came on board with that initial project in December 2018. So I met her through that. She also came when we went back in January. So it's myself, Lena, and we were originally when we started setting up the charity, I thought it was going to be straightforward, like setting up a business definitely was not straightforward. <laughs> it is the hardest thing I've ever done. But we were really, really lucky because we had a a lawyer up in Brisbane come on board pro bono. So he ended up coming on board as a director as well. And he takes care of just overseas legal stuff. So, yeah, in Australia, it's myself, Lena and Glenn. And then obviously over in Tanzania, we've got a governing board also who we've got a lawyer over there, Saidi, and uh, Gaspar, who's another friend of ours, a local Tanzanian as well. And they're amazing. They are such good team leaders on the ground. So yeah, we're really lucky. Have you achieved your charitable status now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We got it all back in October. So that was exciting. It was I think nine months in the process of happening and we couldn't have done that without Glenn. So yeah, we were really, really lucky for that. And so now it's basically you can raise funds as you choose and you can apply them where you choose because you've got all the legal structures in place. Is is that right? Correct. Yeah. So everything's in place. And, and like I said, right now, we're really focusing on being able to get over there and establish mid 2021. So just trying to hit that fundraising goal right now and then rent the space and and launch the program. So tell me where people can find out more about the charity and donate to it. Do you have a website? Yes, yes, we do. So we're called the Kutamani Foundation and Kutamani is spelled exactly as it sounds. Sorry, so K-U-T-A-M-A-N-I, kutamanifoundation.org. It will come up or even if you Google it on Google, we now come up first, which is exciting. (laughs) And then we've also got a Facebook page and Instagram, which also 
come up on Google. So it's all there and, yeah, people can get involved. My contact details are there. If anyone had any further questions or things like that, I'm available as well to, to contact. Lucy, you're such an inspiration. Honestly, <laughs> it was amazing to talk to you the other week and I'm so glad you said you'd appear on the podcast because how old are you? 20. 20. You've done all this for the time in 20. Well, I haven't done anything too exciting just yet. I mean, hopefully all things go well and we do, but yeah. Well, thank you so much and you are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Honestly, it's huge for us just to to get that outreach and things like that and chat about it. And we'll stay in touch so that we can get updates. So maybe talk to you toward June, July, August. Yeah. We can find out what's happening and keep people updated. Would be lovely if you're up for that. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Hopefully by then we will be another whole lot of steps further which will be awesome so definitely fantastic thank you so much lucy no worries thank you so much too karen head on over to the website for more information about this episode and more information about my guests and don't forget to subscribe we'll love you forever thanks so much for tuning in see you next week bye